As most of you will know, uh, Nino Bucci is a journalist with the ABC, um, formerly with The Age, formerly with the Canberra Times and the Bendigo Advertiser as well. No Moin less. Gazette for a little few. Probably wrote a couple. Yeah, Moin, yeah, Moin Gazette as well <laughs> there for a while. Um, so Nino's also uh, recently written a true, co- true crime book about the Stockos, um, a father and son pair that uh, terrorised Victoria and New South Wales and Queensland over a number of years and Port Ferry um, features in the book as well. So, uh, Nino, tell us a little bit about the book to give me a little bit of a, give everybody else a bit of an overview of what the book's about and uh, tell us a little bit about the Stockos. Thank you, Woody. Climbing up the... uh Port Ferry MC Power Rankings, <laughs> just behind Tim Ald. <laughs> um, so basically, I came across these guys when I was working at The Age. Um, they had been sort of getting a modicum of attention uh, nationally and then that kind of ratcheted up after they shot at a couple of police uh, sort of near... Wagga uh, and went on the run um, and this was um, sort of something that increasingly captured everybody's attention because it was clear that the coppers in New South Wales and Victoria actually had no idea where they were um, and as the sort of chase stretched into a second week we started kind of digging into everything else we knew about these guys and and I actually hadn't I'd been following the story but hadn't had to do much reporting but kind of stumbled across this old article about them robbing the Port Ferry Yacht Club and uh, you know sort of 10 years previously and thought well that's pretty pretty fascinating um, and so sort of got a little bit more info about it and, and called up some some people down here actually to get the the backstory and just did a pretty straight sort of um, you know piece about well you know, this is the last time these guys were on the run. They were, you know, in a stolen yacht rather than a um, rather than a stolen ute, and um, they were they were robbing sort of houses and rather than robbing farms and shooting at police. And it was a pretty kind of standard, you know, four hundred word story of the type that sort of churned out all the time. But I was pretty convinced there was a, a fascinating kind of um, backstory to it all, and and that's what sort of eventually led me to um, to the book. So. I, uh, I spent a couple of years sort of pulling it together, traveling up to Ingham where, where they came from. Um, you know, Mark Stocko, the son, uh, and Gino Stocko, the father. Uh, Gino's parents had moved over from Italy and were, and so he was sort of second generation Italian in Ingham, which has got a large Italian population sort of up near Cairns. Uh, and, and basically, I traveled sort of as, as part of writing a book travelled from um, from up there all the way, you know, down to parts of the Darling Downs um, through sort of western New South Wales uh, and then obviously around around here and some of the offences they did here and then covered the court case up in Sydney as well. So, uh, yeah, it was basically a lot of work to try and build as much of a picture as I could about these guys that I just sort of found really um, odd. Yeah. They're uh, reading through the book um, and for those that have read it uh, in the room as well, I'm sure you'll agree that 
their dynamic seemed very, very strange, very outside the normal dynamic between a father and son. Um, what? Uh... <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> Maybe I'm not. <laughs> Thanks, Tony. Keep the heckling up for Dad. Not so much us. Um, so what? Um, what particular kind of things uh, did you find strange when you first started your research uh, with these two? For, for mine, the, one of the stranger things reading the book is the fact that they always insisted on sleeping in the same bed um, in all of the farms that they stayed in. Yeah, so I suppose at a, at a kind of the, to start at all in terms of breaking up their relationship, I was really interested in how much it had to do with that traditional italian idea of the you know the father and the son and the kind of you know um yeah following following in your father's footsteps and and taking over the family business and all that stuff because that was really strong in him and it was clear when i went up there that there were these um issues with the handing over of family legacies when it came to big cane farms and you know, really weird disputes over money that were occurring within families. You know, there was a, a, a kind of horrible case that I hadn't heard of until I started researching the book of, you know, this guy in his early 30s constantly being promised this, you know, cane farm by his parents and them sort of, you know, constantly kind of reneging on handing him over the title to him and eventually just like killed them both with a shotgun, you know. And so I sort of, <laughs> what's that? maybe (laughs) um and uh and so i sort of explored that a little bit and whether that had had any impact on on how they sort of went down this strange path um because gino the father was you know he basically wasn't left much by his father his father was a little bit of a scallywag but gino sort of took it to another level ever since he was you know a little boy he was constantly causing trouble apparently around him doing really sort of you know petty pranks but also just like outrageous sort of nicks um and and just kind of burning basically everybody that he came across which is not the way you get forward in a small town uh and um and so I wondered whether, you know, obviously then when Gino's own son, Mark, had got to an age where he would have been aware of that and aware of the fact that his father's legacy was fairly tainted, um, whether that had, I guess, a bit of a push effect when it came to following him into crime, you know, because he felt that he didn't necessarily have anything else to live for. But well, that's right, yeah, and that's, that's right. And that's, that's, that's the thing that kind of, in a way was the counterweight to that is that he appeared to have been on a path to um i guess stepping out of his father's shadow there and um and achieving stuff off his own bat that you know his dad couldn't have dreamed of he was you know in the final year of an engineering degree uh he had his own mates he um you know was yeah apparently he had a a girlfriend he was a supposedly a fairly well-rounded guy um then his parents' marriage broke up. Gino, you know, moved to within, you know, a few k's of the university in Townsville, and sort of started building a house there. You know, Mark saw how good his dad was, you know, on the tools, and apparently just decided to give it all in. Um, 
So, you know, that was the kind of start, I guess, of this, you know, really sort of bonkers criminal enterprise that sort of, you know, lasted for, you know, 15 years after that. Um, and as that, that criminal enterprise kind of kept gathering momentum, um, it kept getting sort of weirder and weirder as well. Uh, yeah, they were, they were, you know, sharing beds. Um, they were, you know, kind of, seemingly incapable of doing things independent of each other um they didn't have it, it doesn't you know appear there's there's no record at all of them having you know any like friends or partners or anything for that entire period after gino broke up with um his wife mark's mother and, and mark subsequently separated from his girlfriend um and obviously in terms of the, the crimes and things they were committing they were committing them you know pretty much solely um you know together there was nobody else ever involved there was nobody else that was you know making any money from it they weren't you know fleecing stolen goods to anybody else it was just a a really odd thing and it would have been odd you know if you had two people that were this close that weren't father and son um and in a way that's kind of what explains it i guess is the fact that you know they were so close and that's why they did it all, but that's also what makes them so weird. Yeah, the the, uh, the underlying um, one of the underlying themes of the book as well uh, that I found really interesting was the um, the invasion of uh, people's privacy and people's homes in the um, they were being taken in into these farms, um, and it's seems like a very almost an affront on the Australian kind of culture um, very uh, especially farm culture where they're very accepting people um, and accepting of people into their own homes uh, and then Gino and Mark would you know have a slight um, kind of what they deemed as a personal affront then they would steal and burn and and eventually kill uh, these people that had, had taken them in yeah no definitely and, and that was probably one of the the things i enjoyed most about the book was actually traveling around and hearing from people who lived in these places and who were you know victims of gene and mark and that was definitely something that really burned them you know that feeling that they had tried to do the right thing by people and um that completely done them over um but it is you you sort of it's very easy, you know, when I suppose you're living in, in Melbourne and you, you know, even though I'm obviously from the country and I've known a lot of people that have been on farms and everything else, you forget how vast Australia is and how there's just different, completely different sort of ways of life that we're fairly sort of isolated from because of the fact that, you know, Southeast Australia particularly is, um, you know, fairly densely populated compared to the rest of the country. And so, you know, the places where these guys were typically offending were incredibly isolated. They, you know, relied almost entirely on people like Mark and Gino and this sort of strange itinerant workforce that, you know, none of us are really familiar with. Um, and, you know, Mark and Gino obviously knew that and took advantage of that. Um, but I suppose more than the... Uh, than the, than the affront of having that um, that trust sort of exploited. Um, 
was um i guess the more prevailing feeling was just this kind of disbelief that a very sort of minor slight um could result in just madness and utter sort of um yeah just acts of incredible sort of um like yeah vandalism Um, yeah one of the things that struck me was i think there was a, a small patch of grass that there was a disagreement about yeah, yeah. So there, there was a, f- a few periods where they became really fastidious about these like sets of like patches of lawn out the front of the sort of farmhouses or whatever that they were tending. Uh, and in one particular instance, there was this little patch of lawn on a cattle stud in northern northern New South Wales, and they were like maintaining it, you know, perfectly, and even put a little fence around it. And um, you know, the owner of the property eventually was just like this is a working sort of farm. We can't just have like this one patch of like manicured grass that nobody can go near. Um, you know, can you take the fence down? And they sort of refused and, you know, he insisted and they refused and they sort of took off in a half. Um, and then I came back in, you know, the dead of the night, weeks later, you know, cut every fence, drilled a hole in like the tire, every tire of every piece of machinery, you know, stole all their guns um, and, you know, just caused absolute carnage. Um, and then I came back and did it again. And, I mean, you sort of think, oh, cutting fences, you know, it's an inconvenience. But when it's a cattle start, it's actually incredibly um, costly because all of a sudden there's questions on the, uh, you know, the genetic makeup of, of what you're moving around because stuff's not separated anymore. Um, and, you know, I... I pretty ignorant of how much a you know a straw of semen costs from one of those bulls but uh it's pretty expensive um so yeah it was a um it was that was that was really weird and and again you kind of kept peeling back the sort of layers on these guys and you'd you know the more you found out the more kind of questions you had uh and um and it just sort of i just found it staggering that they'd seem to have devised between themselves this um, odd and really skewed sort of view of like justice and fairness and, you know, and really narrow view. And if you sort of stepped outside that, then, um, you know, they'd, they'd sort of unleash fury. And, you know, the, the bizarre thing about it was that, you know, so many people I spoke to said that they were just, like fantastic workers, incredibly skilled, um, you know, incredibly hardworking, um, would turn their sort of hand to anything, you know, a bit weird, but basically, you know, if you if you judge them just on their work, they'd be, you know, as good a farmhands as anybody they ever had. But it, it wasn't enough, you know, it was never enough. And we'll, we'll obviously get to sentencing and stuff later, but I understand that same work ethic has followed through to their current prison time. Yeah, yeah. So they they basically would. There was this whole sort of stack of um, of reports that were written every day by their prison case managers that got tendered as part of their sentencing that I sort of read through as part of the reporting on this book, and they make it really clear that you know they're just doing this mountain of work in prison as well, basically because they don't they don't have any. Uh, they don't know any other way you know they'd rock up to paint toilet blocks on a saturday you know um just really strange stuff when uh really they don't have any 
Gino particularly has no prospect of ever being, you know, released alive. Um, and Mark, uh, I think, you know, at the earliest he'll be in his, um, you know, he's, he's in his late 30s now. I think he'll be in his early 70s by the time he's released. So, And did they request to share a bed together in prison or share a cell together or something in prison? They right? did, yeah, they did. And that was knocked back because they were told that, you know, if you're a co-accused, um, it's certainly the case in Victoria as well and, and it's the case in New South Wales. If you're a co-accused, you can't share a cell. And so one of the theories that a detective who'd been investigating them mentioned to me is one of the reasons they'd pled guilty, you know, as early as they did was because they wanted to be able to share a cell. Um, so. That's amazing. Uh, one of the other um, kind of intriguing parts of the book are all of the different characters that you obviously met through all of your research. Um, one of the one of the farmers, um, and it, I suppose it's no real surprise to you that my favourite quote involves a good swear word. But yeah. um, he, he said that he's he's met some cunts in his time, and these are comfortably the biggest cunts that he's ever met. Yeah. <laughs> Who was your favourite person that you met throughout your research? And um, yeah, tell me about a few of the characters that you met. Yeah, he was he was probably one of them. Um, Actually, so probably the the podium is almost him and these two other guys I met on the same stretch of highway, uh, just sort of south of Ingham. Um, and this that guy, uh, I don't know if he actually is or not, but he certainly looked like an old bikey um, and lived in you know um, not a Queenslander as we sort of think of them, but. You know this house, this style of house that was very common in Ingham, which was um, it was off the ground, but didn't have you know didn't have a big beautiful veranda or anything like that. It was just basically like off the ground, but like a shithole, you know. Like, um, but he was lovely, and um, and him and his wife took me in for kind of two hours, and they just told you know the most fascinating stories about them, and he'd basically lived across the road from gino and his wife when they were still together when they were operating this service station just outside ingham and it was a complete failure kept losing money and then one day gino and his dad pulled up in a truck with a, um, a giant concrete piece of melon and they're going to try and turn that into like a tourist attraction like the big melon and so he's going into all the backstory of the big melon and and about how you know <laughs> like one day they kind of um, Gino and and Mark like Mark was a kid at this point you know kind of came over and said oh you know do you mind if we you know get a couple of mangoes off your tree because he had this huge you know mango tree um, he's like yeah no worries and then the next day he saw <laughs> like the servo had like these cut up cups of mango they were selling <laughs> like five bucks a pop you know like <laughs> cheeky stuff like that and then even worse stuff you know like how they always used to pop in for for a drink um, at a, at this guy's house, you know, after long after Gino and Mark had started sort of this life of crime, but before they became kind of uh, nationally significant, I guess. But they'd they'd pop back in for a drink, and you know, Gino would sort of pull out this you know really expensive bottle, and he'd sort of say, "Why well, steal a ten dollar bottle? We can steal a seventy dollar bottle," that sort of thing, and. You know, he'd, he'd one day he sort of said, right, hey, Mark, 
And I reckon that Iveco, like the the fridge for the your back of your car, one of those portable fridges. Oh, that Iveco, well, that's fucked. Let's go get another one. And they they just drove into town, got a shopping trolley, walked into like a you know, like an outback shop, whatever, just carrying a piece of paper, loaded the esky in, and just walked straight out again. You know, just the sort of like stuff that you wouldn't even sort of think of that they it was just sort of second nature to them. And eventually, you know, Mark and Gina completely turned on them and, you know, like set this guy's, you know, garage alight and he lost, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars to them. Um, and, you know, and on this same strip of highway, you know, there's this other guy, uh, Laurie. And, um, <laughs> and, uh, and Laurie and his brother, the, the local copper had told me, were, some, were, were, were basically strongly suspected of growing a hell of a lot of dope um for the mafia back in griffith and it stopped doing it in it stopped doing as much of it in griffith because it was you know really clearly known whereas ingham you had you know obviously a shitload of land you had these huge kind of farms where um you know it was pretty easy to hide this stuff and it was you know obviously really easy to grow anything you know up in sort of north queensland so a lot of guys in Ingham because of the Italian connections they had links to some of those old families and they were growing dope and this guy Laurie and his brother apparently were growing dope and anyway the coppers had gone out there three or four years earlier trying to find like basically a search to raid and try and find dope crop I hadn't found anything and then they're on the way out and um and sort of started saw some sort of disturbed ground and started digging around in the ground and found two plastic and like pl- big plastic sort of drums, you know, like a big ice cream containers. Um, one with an L on it and one with the initial of the other brother on the top of it. And they had 125 grand cash in each of them. <laughs> and this guy was living in a house that was even worse than the other house. You know, like just a complete dump, you know, no doors, nothing. But but anyway, the cop is like, yeah, he's dodgy as, but he went to school with Gino. You know, it might be worth having a chat to him. So I roll around there and, um, you know, just kind of just stick my head in the back door and hello. And I could just hear like the shower going like you know, this baritone <laughs> punching out some sort of strange sort of song. And I'll be with you in a sec. Anyway, he comes out, you know, just in his towel and just sort of flops down on the outside couch. And um, yeah, just sort of like gasses on about Gino for an hour and tells me all these great stories about when he was a kid and... Um, and you know, just huge gut hanging out, and tats like on every arm, and um, and just just such a larger than life sort of character. And you you wouldn't have, you just wouldn't have, you would if you met one person like that on a on a sort of newspaper story, then you'd think, oh, this is fantastic. But with this book, there were just you know dozens of them, and the last one was you know ran a servo that was actually successful. It was just a bit down the road from um, from Gino, and he was a great character as well. And you know, they had these weird country and western nights at the at the server all the time so he was of that sort of ilk uh and he basically told me uh, this great story about how when gino had his server he started this ice delivery business and so used to deliver ice to a lot of the businesses around ingham um but what he was doing is he'd he'd drive to the cool rooms of these businesses like unload the ice and then load all the food from that business's cool room back into his truck <laughs> and then drive off. Um, 
yeah, so it's just all these like great little stories that you know the the people themselves that were telling them were inter- interesting enough, but the stories I kind of passed on were were fantastic too. That's terrific. So obviously, it was a fair bit of a scallywag, Gino, by the sounds of things, um, and Mark as well, obviously in tow. Uh, but it led obviously led into something more sinister. What um, what do you know about the the kind of story surrounding the murder and then what kind of quickly ensued after that? Yeah, so um, I want to leave a bit of time for everyone to ask questions as well, so I'll sort of skip over a bit of the history of this. But basically, after they uh, they got named on a list of, of the kind of most wanted people, Gino got named on a list of the most wanted people in, in Australia and, um, and this is before they shot at the police, before they committed the murder. It was basically just because of these really serious arson attacks. And, um, and that sort of really spooked them. They were living in this house that they loved to live in and where the people who owned the house really respected their work uh, that was kind of on the outskirts of Sydney, but they kicked them out. And, um, but while they'd been working on, at this house, they'd met this bloke who was um who was an italian guy a, a bricklayer and um and they all got offered work you know growing this dope crop sort of in the middle of in the middle of new south wales um and uh and it basically went you know as most things did when gino and mark were involved you know eventually it started well and they were working really well together and then it you know they were having little arguments about shit like not getting credit for setting up the tv or you know the location of the water tank or um you know the gears and the tractor not working and the main guy that they were sort of having these conflicts with was this bloke called rosario simone who had been involved in these kind of small well well you know commercial size but not you know huge kind of dope um enterprises for a long time you know stretching back 30 sort of years and um anyway him and gino were kind of at each other and eventually um he sort of cracked it and said right i'm going to go back to sydney tell the guys that have financed this whole operation you know what's going on here and they're gonna you know they'll make up their minds what to do with you basically um and so he's taken off down the driveway this really remote farm in a place called elong elong where they've been growing the dope um but the gate was locked and the gate being locked is, you know, a kind of fascinating part of all this. I'm still not completely sure what to make of it because, um, you know, the gate was sort of never locked and, uh, and it, it, it's, it's odd that it wasn't this occasion where he's trying to leave, you know, as these things were escalating. But, but anyway, he, he tears back up to the house, says to, you know, Mark and Gino, you know, the gate's locked, you know, where's the key? They go into the bedroom sort of under the guise of, of looking for it. Uh, and Mark, even though, you know, up until this point, if you're kind of looking at their criminal history and you're sort of reading, you know, about how he's gone from this, you know, final year engineering student to this, you know, petty crook to this, you know, wanted fugitive, you sort of assume that he's, you know, done so because of his father. Uh, Mark actually says to Gino, just shoot him, you know, and gives him this semi-auto shotgun that they've got under the bed and yeah lo and behold Gino walks out and basically shoots him and 
you know, effectively it's the culmination of this sort of building pressure that they feel has um, not let up for months and has sort of forced them away from the kind of life that they'd wanted to lead, which is effectively, you know, outside of the system, doing whatever they wanted and, you know, lashing out at people when they when they told them they couldn't. Um, you know, that's what that's how they sort of would characterise it later on. But um, I'm still not completely convinced it's as, as, as simple as that. Living outside of the system and lashing out at people when they try and make them be in the system sounds a bit like Dad, but... Well, <laughs> or Tony well, who's just waking up. G'day, Tony. Or, or Tony who's having a quick nap. Uh, <laughs> now, if anybody... <laughs> Shouldn't have put you in a comfy seat. <laughs> uh, without dragging on too, too much longer with me asking Nino questions, I've got plenty more to ask, but um, I can ask them over breakfast tomorrow. Um, those of you who won't be at breakfast tomorrow, does anybody have any questions... <laughs> Very good. <laughs> Go on, Mick. I'd I'd sort of been looking for something for a while to 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 do a book on. I'd had a couple of mates that had done one and thought it'd be a good challenge. Um, but I think it basically was and this sort of sounds a, a bit kind of asked about, but basically that there wasn't any there wasn't any info there and that frustrated me. There wasn't, you know, there's a, a pretty good court database that collates a lot of info on sentencing and all the rest of it and they weren't in that at all. Um, you know, there was no, we've got a pretty good access to a pretty good, you know, archiving system that searches, you know, newspapers, you know, everywhere, you know, like including the, you know, the bloody gazette and they weren't in that at all. And I've sort of thought, hang on a minute, how have you got these two blokes that have, you know, it wasn't until after the murder and everything, um, but even after that, like these blokes have, you know, been effectively, you know, subject to warrants in at least three different states for a decade. Like, how does that happen? You know, and, and I was one of my, you know, kind of main sources of intrigue, to be honest, at the start was whether this was an interesting kind of, um, jurisdictional policing thing which i know sounds a little bit wonky but um i've kind of been fascinated in the sort of odd differences between states when it comes to policing and about how you know there's kind of almost this odd threshold there where if you're kind of you know committing pretty serious crimes but not you know that serious then you could kind of just be in new south wales and it's like being in you know guatemala um which is really sort of weird um, but it obviously ended up being, you know, a lot, a lot sort of deeper than that. And I, I don't know, I've, I've always liked these kind of, you know, as dad obviously does, these sort of absurd stories that kind of can't neatly be, um, packaged up. So that was, that was, um, I guess part of the ambition that I sort of held is to try and capture it as much as possible. Yeah. Hi, Wendy. I, uh, I spoke to her family a lot and tried to get them over the line and, and she wasn't having it. Um, I think she's fairly happy um, now. Uh, I, I, it's probably 
it's one of the things that I really wished I had. I'd, I actually wish I'd been able to speak to her more than than them. I wasn't able to speak to them either um, because it's sort of not like the movies. You can't just make a prison request and rock up. You've kind of got to get approval from corrective services and it's a big, you know, palaver. Um, but I really wish I had spoken to her because, you know, he, Gino committed some, or, and Mark, you know, committed some really awful crimes about against her as well, which are in the book. You know, really just awful stuff. Um, you know, her family um, were one of the Italian families that settled all that farming land in Werribee South and, um, and you know, still have got a huge amount of um, sort of land and, and credibility down there. You, you've probably seen their big trucks, Frangipane or Frangipane, um, you know, red letters and, and things like that. But, you know, he basically, after they separated, went down there with Mark and put up all these flyers, you know, accusing of her affairs and, and being promiscuous and just really, like, awful stuff, you know. And, and, and they robbed her in, you know, a supermarket down there, you know, basically, like, bag snatched her in a supermarket down there, you know, did this weird thing, which is, again, one of the, probably my favourite stories, as, as disturbing as it is, but... You know, one night called up the house she lived in with her partner and said, is Mr. Flat been there? Like, I don't know why. Like, I still don't know what that actually means, but it's pretty odd, like in the context of like her coming from a family that grows lots of beans. Like, I don't know if that... It was just really... <laughs> I can't work it out, but it like, just sticks in my head. Um, yeah. Uh, so, no, I didn't. But her family definitely were helpful to a point. Um it was there were actually uh you know the stocko side of the family his older brother mario and um and his wife so mario and his wife actually live in werribee south too and are still friendly with her and her family and um and i kind of touch on this a little bit in the book but but not to this extent but basically i've i called up mario's house a few times and left messages and all the rest of it. One time I called up and got his wife. Um, I can't remember her name now, but but she basically completely gave me the, you're Italian, you know what it's like, blood's thicker in the water. If you want to speak to us, you've got to pay up. You know, like, I'm not paying you any money. <laughs> I'm not paying you money like for an interview about it. She's like, well, this is how this works. You know, we've been through hell over this. You know, we're really close with Connie. You know, if you want us to talk, you have to pay up. And it was just madness. Like I was like, why would I pay like the sister-in-law of a convicted murderer like to talk to me? Like if you don't talk to me, that's fine. But like ask me to pay you. You're just going to end up in my book saying <laughs> you asked me to pay you, which is what happened. Um, <laughs> so yeah, so it was, it was funny. Um, it, that was an interesting kind of insight, I suppose, into the fact that um, like into how harmful what they did to her how harmful what they did to her would have been um but yeah i never got to hear from, hear from her herself yeah no no i don't not really interested in speaking to roberta <laughs> no i'm already what's that yeah well that's true too yeah no i've had enough of melbourne's underworld for the time being I'm getting sued by mick gatto so that's it's about enough for me yeah. <laughs> Just as a point of interest, Nino calls me Mr. Flatbean as well now, which is <laughs> nice whenever I receive a call from him. 
Any other questions from out on the floor? Don't know. Yeah, don't know. I said I'd send them a copy if they wanted one. Um, I was in contact with them via their lawyers uh, when that was all going on and then when they ceased to have lawyers, I just wrote to them directly in prison uh, and I've never heard anything back. So um, the only kind of thing I guess I could, you know, or the only insight I guess I've got into uh, how they feel about their the coverage of their story in general is um, – Sunday night did a special on them um, fairly early in the piece, I think even before they'd been sentenced. And that's mentioned in those prison documents I mentioned earlier in terms of the reports that they were, um, that prison officers were writing up about, you know, what they're like inside, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, uh, and basically they were asked, you know, how are you feeling about this publicity and, you know, are you worried about it? Because obviously you know, being a target in prison is not good um, or being known in prison is not good and um, and they already would have had some level of notoriety but a big TV show coming out about them um, may not have been helpful. But, and, and, you know, words to this effect are written up in these reports prior to the show being broadcast, you know, asked them, are they worried? They said no, et cetera, et cetera. And then after it came out, um, I think both of them basically said that, you know, um, they hadn't been getting any trouble from fellow inmates and if anything, um, they'd been getting a pat on the back for it. So um, I don't I'm – not, I'm not sure basically whether they've read it or not. Um, I'd love to hear from them one day. Maybe Mark or right after Gino dies. Who knows? Well, Gino at one point was getting sort of a bit kind of New Testament with um, – one particular guy, one particular farmer that I spoke to that was sort of in southern um, New South Wales and 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 seen and car- but uh, yeah, kind of seemed to be talking a lot as if he was religious. But then this <laughs> he he this was the same guy that he kind of also would go on those big rants about you know the banks and Jews and all the rest of it. So I think he just kind of had these periods where he'd become fixated on certain things um, and sort of every time he'd have a couple of beers, just hammer whoever, you know, the landlord was they were living with at the time. But no, not not in a big way. Certainly his mother was um, was very religious and, um, and you know, the cemetery up there, um, you know, I do something I always feel a bit creepy doing, but it's actually quite handy journalistically and snooped around the cemetery. And, um, you know, it's a typical country cemetery with the divided in the, you know, bi-religions and all the rest of it. Uh, and the mother was, um, you know, a very observant Catholic and um, was buried um, as such. Uh, but, yeah, I don't I don't think it was a, a, a factor. The other thing that was actually suggested to me and I kind of put it in the end section of the book, which is kind of a bit of a sort of tying up of loose ends or, or at least a sort of, um, I suppose, an explanation of the, of the fact that I acknowledge a loose end exists. And, and one of those is that I spoke to sort of a, um, a forensic psychologist about some of their behavior and, and why they might be acting the way they, they acted. And they said, you know, people that lash out like Gino, they have seen that in uh, cases of survivors of childhood sexual abuse. Now, Gino did go to a Catholic school that was, um, 
nobody particularly from that school was ever done but that you know archdiocese up there has had lots of problems with abusers so you know, that was something that I sort of said, look, at the end of the book, I don't know and I don't have any answers to this, but Gino certainly was Catholic, you know, educated in the Catholic system at a time where abuse was relatively rife. Um, whether or not that had any impact or, like, or was a factor at all, I don't know. Yes. Yeah, he's got a sister um, and uh, she didn't, participate either but i spoke to her husband at length um and yeah she's really normal uh a nurse in townsville um you know got a few kids it was it was pretty sad actually you know like he like gino completely sort of like they just did it to everybody you know like he, he went to their house once and and um you know after lunch like tried to steal some of like her husband's tools and he caught him and told him off. And then as sort of recompense, like Gino and Mark drove like hundreds of kilometers to his dad's place or his parents' place in the Darling Downs. So like the son-in-law's parents' place in the Darling Downs and like destroyed their Land Rover. You know, like just really weird stuff like that that they just um, they just sort of thought, well, you know, eye for an eye with everything, you know. Anya? No, the the one probably the the actual kind of only sort of hairy part about it was that I wasn't completely sure because there's people that are far better at this than me. Um, I wasn't completely sure of the lineage of the murdered bloke's family, but particularly of his. Uh, son-in-law because he's a peri or pere and they are a very serious um nandrangata or calabrian mafia mafia family in australia there's a lot there's you know hundreds of them that are completely fine and he could have been one of them but i was slightly concerned that he wasn't and he worked on them he worked you know in the the markets in sydney which is you know like the stereotype you know of, of the markets being you know a, a mafia thing is, is true you know that that's that's certainly something that's historically true and is still true to a point today so i was slightly concerned that because they were not particularly happy that this story was getting um even more coverage that perhaps he would you know take umbrage to it but yeah nothing came of that yeah Yes, we'll go one last question. Yeah. Uh yeah, yeah. We should mention your vested interest in this, Peter. <laughs> Peter's Peter's daughter is a wonderful journalist, uh, Tammy Mills, who I worked with for a long time at the Age, and um, and and 
she still reports on on crime a lot and i mean the answer to that question like in in very general terms is that i've always figured that they've got bigger problems than us <laughs> you know like they're they're criminals because like that's what they do it's not it's like if, you know a footballer decided that he was gonna have a massive crack at you because of an article you wrote about him having a shit game on the weekend you know like they're not gonna they've got other they've got bigger fish to fry basically in saying that there's obviously you know examples where um there has been you know certain stories or, or certain journalists that have really um that have really irked uh criminals or, or people from that that um milieu um but i mean in contemporary australia probably the most uh troubling threat has been actually um you know direct threats leveled at certain journalists by islamic state um you know and that resulted in at least sort of a handful of journalists in in australia being you know like relocated you know by their employer you know to somewhere that was safer with you know heightened security you know that was taken very seriously at the time um so slightly different to your kind of like run-of-the-mill crim here i mean I've, I've got contacts with people that are you know that are organized crime figures um and uh i'd feel relatively comfortable that if uh you know someone of that world was um particularly uh aggrieved at something i'd done to the point that it was potentially a threat to me that i'd know about it either from that world or from police um yeah i just don't i don't think that they take tend to take it that personally and it's there's also there's also another kind of couple of things at play here one of which is that um we we take ourselves probably a bit too seriously and a lot of the time i'll sort of mention to somebody oh did you see that piece i wrote about you the other day you know someone who's a who's a crook and not you know and so like they don't even know it exists And, and and um yeah, the other side of it is is that some of them actually like the publicity, even if it's bad. You know, um, they like their name being out there. Well, I certainly know you've got a price on your head from a few of the people that you roughed up in Port Ferry Under 18s football. But <laughs> other than that, I'm glad you don't have one on your head at the moment for anybody more serious. Uh, that's probably all that we've got time for. So, um, the book is. The Stockos, uh, it's on sale here tonight. Um, more than supporting Nino and his young child who's very, very hungry. Um, <laughs> you can support the local bookshop, uh, Blarney Books. It was terrific of them to put this whole thing on tonight. So uh, have it a round of applause for them first and foremost. And also Paul and Nino for their... Parts tonight. And for Woody. Thank you all. <laughs>